Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus on the emotional connection more than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. What's up, everyone? And welcome to episode 108 of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Patch, and with me, ready to strike first and strike hard, is my best friend and co-host, Aaron. No mercy! (laughs) (laughs) This week, we thought we'd roll back a few decades and visit 1984's The Karate Kid, starring Ralph Macchio, Pat Morita, Elizabeth Shue, and William Zabka. But like Cobra Kai, this is a team effort. So we've recruited the best around. Nothing's gonna ever keep it down. To help us talk through this 80s classic. None other than the one and only Adam Rakoff. Thanks, guys. I'm really excited to be back. Um, and yeah, this is this is a childhood favorite. So this this is a, a real uh trip down memory lane for me. It is for us too. And as many of you know, uh, we got a chance to interview Adam and his friend Matthew Modine regarding their iOS app, Full Metal Jacket Diary, which focused on Modine's journaling and pictures taken while filming Full Metal Jacket. And if you didn't know that, please just stop now and take a listen to episode <laughs> 95.1 because those conversations are definitely worth checking out. More so about them talking than us. So ignore anything we ask or say and just listen to the goodness that is Adam and Matthew. <laughs> Thanks very much. <laughs> <laughs> now, before we get into the full discussion about this movie, we normally talk about what we've been watching or what we've been up to this last week. But part of the reason for covering The Karate Kid was due to the debut of the YouTube Red original series, Cobra Kai. Now, that dropped a few days ago. And if you weren't aware, the series takes place about three decades after the events of the first film, and it centers around the rekindled rivalry between Daniel LaRusso and Johnny Lawrence. Now, I know that we were all curious about it, and we thought it would be fun to talk about the premiere as kind of a primer for The Karate Kid. So, Adam, let's start with you. What kind of thoughts or opinions did you have about that first episode? Yeah, I I watched the first episode twice, actually, and uh, just to sort of let it all sink in. And then I, I almost couldn't help myself. I went right into the second episode, and I'm, I'm actually just finished the fifth episode. I didn't want to get too far in, though, because... Uh, I, I wanted to make sure we really were focusing on the first episode for this podcast. But I had I'm having a blast with the with the show in general right now. I think it's a lot of fun. It's actually a lot better than I think it needed to be. <laughs> it could have been a lot cheesier and a lot kind of more low rent. It, it just for me though, it's really uh, it, it's working surprisingly well as not just a sequel to a very dramatic film franchise, but it's very funny as well, but not in a in sort of a campy or farcical way. It's not a parody, but it just has a lot of really humorous elements to it that is, and that's very challenging to do, to find that balance between comedy and drama, especially, again, as I said, c- coming from uh, a series, a film trilogy that has very few laughs, in my opinion. <laughs> There's a few little moments where you smile or chuckle, but it's not a they're not funny movies. So to make this decision to sort of take it in a, in a more lighthearted direction was sort of a bold choice, I think. But I, I think they found the right balance and I'm, I'm really enjoying it right now. Very cool. What about you, Aaron? Well, I'm kind of torn. I know, you know, I've been texting you about this all weekend. Mm-hmm. I watched the first episode and my initial thought was, wow, this is pretty bad. But 
gosh, I really want to watch the second episode. And so I did. (laughs) And now, like you, Adam, I'm like five deep into the series because I just keep watching. And and it's it's not quite like train wreck level. It's It's not that bad. But it's got a similar feeling to it where there's so much kind of cringeworthy stuff happening for me. My goodness gracious, Johnny Lawrence, as cool as it is, Johnny Lawrence is inspired by watching Iron Eagle. Like, I don't know whether that's awesome or ridiculous, but maybe it's just both. And that's what Cobra Kai seems to be giving me. I have not bought into William Zabka as an actor until probably like the end of the fourth episode. And I, and I know we're talking about the first episode, but frankly, we've all seen more than that. So whatever. Um, we can we can go a little bit further. I, the point is that there it comes a moment in the series for me, and it has at least now happened, where I feel like, okay, here's an emotional scene that I buy between him and, and an ex-wife. And so it feels like maybe there's enough here. I, I still don't think these guys are great actors. There's a reason. There's a reason that they did not have long-standing star-making careers, okay? They're not fantastic, but I think they're giving it their all. And frankly, like you guys have said, like, it's just, it's fun. And it's really neat to me. One of the cool things was the opening of it because I watched Karate Kid with my kids because they'd never seen it. And then we immediately, like after a five minute break, put Cobra Kai on. So there was no gap at all in between watching the end of the Karate Kid fight and watching it again in Cobra Kai, like reimagining and what was neat is in Cobra Kai, it feels like it's straight out of the movie Creed. It's got a superimposed scoreboard, which I was like, ooh, that's pretty cool like adjustment. I like that. And then it's got, you know, the kick in slow motion, which is really awesome. And so I think there's enough here that it's entertaining. It, it's a lot of nostalgia. So if you're gonna watch this, you have to be ready for that. Like this is shameless nostalgia based series making and it's also shamelessly this generation and kind of like a big ad for youtube itself okay i mean everything in here is youtube culture and it makes that a very big point with the teenagers in this show so you if you can accept that i think it's it's a really cool blend it's balanced you know it's it's a neat thing yeah i had a chance to watch the first two episodes during the fathom event that happened a couple of weeks ago uh, unfortunately, I didn't stick around for the feature of the Karate Kid because of some goons behind me that kept talking. So, But I did get to see the first two episodes. And what I pulled away from it was that it's got some work to do. That was kind of the reaction to it. Somebody actually said in the theater, and I was kind of, a, I was couldn't tell if I was just really annoyed with the comment or the person talking because of the fact that they were. But they said, you know, this is kind of like one of those really bad Christian movies with a lot of cussing. And <laughs> there's some truth to that because it, feels a little forced. It definitely is unapologetic about the nostalgia and calling back. I've actually seen the entire series. I, I just kind of plowed my way through it over the last few days. My personal opinion is that it kind of bell curves where I think it gets really good um, for what it is um, in the middle episodes. And it's kind of its weakest points are near the beginning and the end. Now there's a, there's a moment at the end that's pretty great but I was kind of disappointed at both how it started and how it ended. And my hope is that the second season with the, if there's a second season, the way it ends from this first, that 
it doesn't have to rely on those kinds of callbacks that it doesn't have to, it can, it can start finding its footing, start becoming something that's more of an organic natural progression of these two characters. Because frankly, I love the concept. I think it's fantastic that we're looking at this world from Johnny's point of view. And I know that there's a famous YouTube video that kind of explores that. And I've, I've read different articles that hint at, social psychologists have looked at the karate kid seeing Daniel as the bully. And there's definitely some argument for that, but I think what this show does is it kind of takes that expands it, explores it. And it gives us an opportunity to potentially see some redemption in Johnny's character. And so while I do agree, Aaron, that the, the actors themselves are not that strong, not as strong as I'd like them to be. I'm okay to forgive that because of what, because of the nature of the show. The fact that it's not, frankly, it's being written by guys that wrote Hot Tub Time Machine. So I'm not yeah. really looking for a lot of, you know, oh, parenthood or this is us dramatic stuff. I want more of that. And I hope that maybe they bring in some writers that can write drama in a, in an effective way, because I think this move or this television series has the potential to be something really good. I think it's just, kind of working out the kinks in this first season. Yeah, I think this is a great example of where expectations affect how you're going to appreciate this series. I had zero expectations going in and found myself very pleasantly surprised, you know, watching this at 11 o'clock at night at how much fun I was having. Whether I would have the same fun at at the Fathom, if I would have gone to that Fathom event, which I actually was trying to do, I think I might have had a different reaction to the first two episodes because mm. when you do pay, you know, and go out to a theater to see something, I think your expectations are understandably higher. You're hoping for something of, of a, a higher caliber that will really just knock your socks off um, because you're going out of your way. You're, you're, you know, you're in, in many cases, you're, if you have a family, you're, you're, you're not seeing your kids for a couple hours, all of that. So watching it at home, though, I think it, with low expectations made me find, made me really have an appreciation for what they were trying, what they are trying to do. Again, ha- not having seen the, the second five episodes, the second half, um, the, the episode I just finished, I know we're supposed to focus on episode one, but episode five, I thought the ending was fantastic. I thought there was just, uh, it was to me, it has sort of built to that moment. Right. And, um, and I just, I love spoiler alert, (laughs) just seeing Daniel, you know, put on his headband Mm -hmm. and take out his gi with the patch that Miyagi's wife, you know, made and, and hear that, that Bill Conti theme play. It it just, it it worked for me. It made me just, you know, it took me back in time. And I, Mm -hmm. I've always, and another thing that I've always been curious about with my favorite eighties films is where were these teen characters be today and this is kind of the first time that we're really getting to see like what would what type of career or path would daniel take i remember i don't know what critic said it but i remember reading one time a critic said that um in the film risky business um joel goodson played by tom cruise that if he were to grow up he would probably have become jerry Maguire. like not just because it was the same actor but just because that that's kind of the the career path that Joel Goodson probably would have taken. So it's like he's a mature version of, of the young teenage version of Joel Goodson. And, you know, that's always been a fascinating 
thought for or concept mm-hmm. for me to kind of revisit these characters. And we're, we're getting more and more of it right now with this trend. You know, we're yeah. going to get it with Maverick from Top Gun. We're going to see what type of guy he turned out to be in the very near future. So uh, I'm all for it. I, you know, good or bad, I think it's just fun to see where these iconic 80s characters have been for the last 35 years. <laughs> <laughs> There's something really interesting. I was watching when I was watching The Karate Kid. I don't remember the actor's name, but he's a, an African-American actor and he was in Karate Kid. He's the one that got beat up during the the sparring session. And he's also in Space Camp uh, with Tate Donovan and company. He's also in Iron Eagle. And so I thought, how how meta is this that you've got you've got Johnny Lawrence watching this 80s movie that has an actor who played one of his Cobra Kai teammates in the Karate Kid. I don't I don't know if that was something that was thought of. It probably wasn't. I'm probably the only person that thought about that. But I thought, hey, he knows the guy in that movie because he <laughs> he okay. was the guy. Yeah. But that's definitely meta. <laughs> I like that though. I I agree. And I would much rather see it happen like this 30 years later than an immediate sequel that tries to keep following characters. And and I wish that we would have more stories that just kind of in this day and age, everything has to have a sequel, like let something die. Let's live with it for a while. And then if you want to come revisit it, you know, some stuff you can, some stuff, most of you won't, but like Marty McFly, what would he be like now? You know, like these are, these are great questions to ask. They really are. They really are. But before we get into the full-on spoiler-filled review, uh, Aaron, I know you've got an announcement or two that you'd like to throw our way. Right. So we want to be thankful, of course, for our amazing patrons who are currently voting right now on May's donor pick episode. It's going to be Mother's Day themed. Um, So there's like four really sweet Tinder movies and then Terminator 2. That should be fun. Uh, and seeing what gets chosen. There's still time to vote. If you're listening to this before May the 10th, if you sign up, you can be part of that process as well. And then we'll be dropping a new top five episode uh, sometime this week, as w- not this week, sorry, sometime this month as well uh, as into bonus content for those Patreon, Patreon subscribers. And we have two new ones, Jackie and Seema. So we wanted to say thanks to Jackie and Seema for jumping on board and being willing to throw us a couple bucks to help keep the show going. We are really, really grateful for that. And lastly, we have some partners. And so we want to make sure that we are supporting them as well and letting you learn about other great podcasts. Hello, everyone. This is JD from the In Session Film Podcast. Each week, we review the latest from Hollywood, California. Well, yes, Brendan. We also give top three lists. Okay. Yeah. Thanks again, Brendan. Additionally, you can hear us talk other movie news, trailers, varying movie series, or other interesting film-related topics, and even rants and raves of the week. On top of our main show, every Friday, you can also hear our extra film podcasts. Uh, you can listen to the In Session Film Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or at InSessionFilm.com. Listen to the In Session Film Podcast every Monday and Friday. Subscribe today and hear me verbally beat JD like a Cherokee drum. No, 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 no. That's not how this works, <laughs> sir. And now it's time to get into The Karate Kid. And as we mentioned before, this is a full-on spoiler review. This was a movie that came out in 1984. So please do yourself a favor. Check out the movie before you uh, listen to this, I would assume, this fun-filled conversation that we're about to have. All right, Adam, what we like to do as we get into our discussion is we try to come up with one word that would describe our takeaway from 
our most recent viewing of the movie that we're covering. So we'll start with you. Is there a word that stood out to you when you finished watching The Karate Kid this time around? Well, yeah, I, for the first time, I think I looked at this film as a hero's journey. That's two words, but that's how I never really looked at it that way before. But if you really look at Joseph Campbell's definition of a hero's journey, it really fits the, it, it, it meets most of the criteria that I found to be interesting because obviously when I first saw this movie, I didn't see this in the theater, but I did see it on VHS like almost immediately after it came out. I think most of us saw a lot of the classic movies we saw on VHS the first time. But yeah, I saw it maybe in 85, 86. I was probably like uh, eight, nine years old. And um, I obviously didn't know anything about Joseph Campbell (laughs) at the time or The Hero's Journey or any of that. I had seen Star Wars, which is essentially, you know, the same thing, but more literal. But I think that this Daniel's journey, Daniel is the everyman that we relate to who was thrown uh, into a new environment. And, you know, he has to overcome obstacles and ultimately learn something about himself and about, you know, in this case, karate and about the world that he's now living in. And yeah, he wins the victory at the end. He becomes the hero and he takes that knowledge presumably back to his life and applies it to whatever he's going to do next. Obviously there were two sequels, so we kind of know what happens next, but we're sort of looking at this film as an independent film, I believe without sort of getting into the the sequels. There's actually three sequels with Mr. Miyagi and a remake with Jackie Chan. So I don't think we're going to touch too much upon those, but that's my thought. Cool. 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 Uh, Aaron, what about you? What's your one word takeaway? Well, I struggle trying to find the right word. Sometimes that they jump off the page or off the screen and just we know right away like this is the this is the definition. But for me it was hard to wrap it all up into a single word. Ultimately, I, I think I'm gonna go with virtuous. And the reason is because I connected big time this time around with Daniel and the type of person Daniel is we talk about this on the show all the time, Patrick watching a movie now in our late thirties or as parents compared to watching it when, like you said, Adam, we were all like eight, nine years old when this came out, vastly different experiences, right? Totally different. Like back then it was all about Daniel's a badass who can do this cool karate kick and whoop somebody's butt, which my son who is 13 that's all he took away from this movie. Like all day today, all he can do is like, he's trying to like crane kick at board game day. Okay. Like this is what he took away just like we all did. But for me now, a you know, 39 year old adult, it was all about Daniel. And the movie kind of starts off a little bit cheesy more so than I remembered. I, I was rolling my eyes and I started to kind of question like why I loved this movie. Cause I was like, Hmm, this, this is not going great. The first 10, 15 minutes. But then you start seeing Daniel right away exhibit these traits that are so unlike anything we see in cinema. He meets somebody for the first time and he's kind to them. She's clearly crazy, but he treats her like she's not. He goes for no reason and gets a bowl out of a freshly unpacked box and fills it with water and waters her dog. And then it just carries on and on and on. He learns from Mr. Miyagi, but he's never really doing it for his own gain if if that makes sense like it, it feels like 
so many characters, so many protagonists in the world of stories today. It's all about overcoming some major character flaw. And I don't see a major character flaw in Daniel. Um, I see a willing student and I, he's friendly, respectful, polite. It's almost like martial arts is there just to kind of focus him more than to fix him. And so I really enjoyed going through this journey with him this time around. It made me connect to the movie a lot more. Yeah, this one's always going to be a favorite of mine. If for no other reason, than it takes place in high school. I am a sucker for high school movies, whether they're comedies, dramas, whatever. And I, I'm like you, Aaron. I look at Daniel and I'm thinking there are a lot of characters that exist today that exhibit the same kind of character traits that he does. Um, I also didn't recognize the hero's journey that, that you picked up, Adam, which is pretty fantastic because I think it informs my one word takeaway, and that's telegraphed. Now, I'm a bit tongue-in-cheek there because of the fight sequences. I'm pretty sure the choreography, you know, you can you can see, you know, some of these things are, it's very much a choreographed uh, film. But I think as a whole, this story is very familiar. It's familiar to us today because we've seen this underdog story happen over and over and over again. But that's part of the reason it draws us to it as as first timers back when we were kids, because I think in some ways we were like Daniel or some ways, maybe we might have been like Johnny, but the fact is we relate to these characters in a way because they were dealing with similar things that, that we were. So it's very predictable. Uh, that underdog story is something that we all gravitate towards. And there's no surprise that this is coming from the same director as Rocky. So I'm automatically going to find a, a love for this in some way, shape or form. But the thing that I, I really, really like about this is that there's layers to this that I didn't pick up until my most recent viewing. And while we're not going to talk about the sequels, the sequels kind of help reinforce what we get in this first one. Um, in a lot of ways, it's like Back to the Future is an amazing film, and it's probably the best in the series, but the things that make it great are reinforced in its sequels. And I love the fact that this movie creates that comfortable space to explore that stuff because we're kind of familiar with the surroundings. It's like you walk into a, a room that you recognize the furniture and you can then have different conversations in there. So there's a lot that you have this comfort comfort level and what it can do is allow you to explore things that may or may not be as comfortable to you. And I think that the karate kid does that. And for me, that's why it holds up 30 years after the fact, because you can get, one thing as a kid and something else entirely as an adult. And both of those be completely true statements. hundred percent true. And I had no idea about the director connection at all. My mind like is blown right now. Cause yeah, I get it. That, that makes a lot of sense. Well, and he brings in Bill Conti, you know, yep. the original composer for Rocky. So, I mean, that's you true. see that and one love informs the other. I was like, Oh, that's why I like Rocky because the guy that did the karate kid did Rocky or vice versa. I mean, in a way, in many ways, the Karate Kid is sort of a teen version of Rocky. It's it's for a teenage audience. It's a high school setting. Um, but I think that, you know, for me, this film, I always related to Daniel as well as many did. I think because, um, like many kids, there was a point in my middle school years where I was bullied a little bit by some kids. And mm -hmm. this became sort of like that, that 
idea that we could live vicariously through Daniel. Like this is what we could do if only we could learn karate. We could stand up for ourselves and and get back. And I actually ended up taking Taekwondo for about five years, um, largely because of this movie, but also because it was just something that was uh, I found to be a good, you know, way to you know, get stronger and just get exercise, just good, you know, good, uh, it's a, a, a healthy activity to do after school. Uh, Taekwondo, of course, is the Korean sort of martial art, um, whereas karate is from Japan. But um, there's a lot of similarities. And uh, it's, uh, yeah, I just think that the, the theme that rings true for so many people with this film is, um, being bullied. I think being bullied, it's such a big problem today still, but in a different way. And the new Cobra Kai series explores that as well in, in the sort of digital landscape. Um, but this is kind of analog bullying. <laughs> you know, we're getting, you know, just bully, you know, get biker gang kids picking on, you know, uh, the small guy for no reason just because they want to, you know. And yeah, I know there's that argument that, Daniel was moving in on his girl and all that, but they were obviously broken up. So, <laughs> and, and again, five against one, as Mr. Miyagi says, that's not fair. For, uh, that's not fair. No, no, no matter how you spin it, that's not fair. Right. So, I love, I love the line just since you had to, since you mentioned that this yeah. is one of the best laughs I had in the whole movie is that early moment where they come upon the beach at night with Daniel down there with Allie yeah. and, and Johnny's talking to his gang and one of the guys says, I thought they broke. Hey, man, I thought they broke up. And one of the guy, the other guy's answer, he says, they did. He <laughs> yeah, didn't. That's right. She did. He didn't. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, that actually, that, that scene, just where they're sort of looking down at the beach, has a couple of great lines that are very 80s. I forget which one. One of the, the, the gang members says, hey, Johnny, take a right. You know, like there's like these lines. Like, hey, who wants a who wants a a, a, a was a, who wants a warm one? You know, like it's like they're just throwing a, beer, a can of warm beer to each other. You know, it's just such funny '80s dialogue, and uh, it's well, and it and it speaks to my Daniel point too, because that yeah. that's another great backup where he's he gets in the fight. He tries very hard. He's like trying to not fight in that scene, but then when he gets the fight gets brought to him and ultimately he gets pushed, pushed, pushed and he punches Johnny in the face. And he's like, come on, man. Yeah. Now we're even like, he wants it to be over. And I, I was like, yeah. dude, who are you? What is yeah. wrong with you? You think this guy, like, obviously he knows better, but he's so programmed to be good that he thinks yeah. in that moment that, okay, now we've each got our lick in and it can be done. Yeah. Yeah. There's another interesting element to that opening shot of Johnny. I, I sort of picked up on for the first time is that he's really trying. He, he actually turns down the beer. He's like, I'm trying to, to, you know, he wants to turn things around and have a good year. He wants to, to make it right in his senior year and not be that ace degenerate that he was you know, throughout his high school you know, career, which adds some humanity to Johnny, I think. Mm -hmm. And it, it's reflected in the very end. It's very easy to miss, but the very end of the movie Johnny grabs the trophy from the referee or whoever it was, the presenter, and he grabs it and he's like crying and he hands it to, to, to Daniel and says, you know, good. I think he says, good job, man. You know, great match. You know, something like that. You know, that's he says, you're all right. He says, you're, you're all right, man. Great match. You know, something like that. And I think that that really added humanity. They didn't have to do that. They didn't have to add that element to it, but that shows that he also earned, um, 
Daniel's he like he now respected Daniel for the first time. Yeah. And I think that's interesting, you know, that he wasn't just a purely bad guy. You know, he was a bully, yes, but he also was being, was being influenced by John Kreese, who was just a horrible man. Right. <laughs> so, you know, I think anyone who's very, you know, young is going to, he, he, I think he was champion three years in a row. So he was obviously two, doing yeah. this since two years. Yeah. So this was his third year competing. So he must have been training with John Kreese since he was in ninth grade or something. Yeah. So, and be, William Zapka yeah. was talking about um, in one of the uh, articles that I'd read, he had actually crafted a backstory for Johnny in order to get better into the role. And you'll find out, th- and I don't know how far you guys are, I, I don't know where this is in the TV series, but that backstory actually comes to fruition in the series. So Johnny's character and this kind of fictitious backstory that Zapka created in order to give him some inspiration and the angst that he has is actually fleshed out a little bit in, in Cobra Kai. And that's really where I teeter back and forth between nostalgia and quality, because you can make the argument that the karate kid is right up there with things like the Goonies and um, these, these movies that have, really great lines that you can quote. Uh, They bring us back to those moments when we were kids of just kind of invigorating our, you know, embedding ourselves in these characters lives. And I could be Daniel, I could be these guys and I could go on this adventure with the Goonies and it could definitely be kind of shelved away as, yeah, that's great nostalgia. But I think what we're bringing up is there's an argument to be made for quality and how, the creators of this series, particularly this first movie, were really beginning to put layers of character development and relationships as part of this overall narrative. And all three of us, I think we gravitated towards crane kicks, beat up the the bad guy and hero's journey and all that stuff. But what we didn't necessarily pick up on, and I guess maybe all three of us did this this time, was there's more going on here than just... Daniel becoming a karate master. Granted, how do you become a black belt in two months? I don't know, but that's the magic of movies. And there we are. But I wanted to talk a little bit about these relationships. And in particular, Daniel's relationship with Mr. Miyagi. Obviously, that's the main focal point in terms of relationships outside of Daniel's relationship with Ali. But we see Miyagi as... A mentor, we see him kind of as a distant, kind of kooky Asian dude at first, and then he sort of makes his way into Daniel's life through these different circumstances. And I wanted to ask, what did you guys pull from this viewing as far as the value of Miyagi on on the film as a whole and for Daniel? I mean, obviously, he was his karate teacher, but what else did you pick up on from that? Well, I, I think that as I mentioned before, I initially always connected with, with Daniel at who wouldn't, you know, if you're a, uh, a kid growing up in the eighties watching this movie, that's, that's the, the character we relate to. Uh, as I get older, I'm not quite as old as Mr. Miyagi was. I, I'm almost 40, but uh, I, I definitely though started to see things through his eyes a little bit more. And I think that's interesting that there's a point in everybody's life where they start to stop relating to 
the teenage character and start relating to the parents a little bit more if they're well developed if these if they're not just like stereotypical kind of um like the Allie's parents are quintessential 80s you know stuck up <laughs> rich parents that like right. every movie in the 80s had those parents <laughs> um and you know i would never relate to that obviously but there is a certain point where i think you do start to relate to the the parental figures a little bit more because you have your own children and you, you have a different perspective on life. And I definitely think that Mr. Miyagi, who had a very difficult life, if you kind of add up all the elements that you learn through the, the, to, through all the films, you know, he had a, he had a, a very challenging, um, difficult life leading up to his, you know, meeting of, of Daniel. And I think he, you know, he lost his wife and an unborn child, in an internment camp during world war two, while he was off fighting in one of the most decorated um, uh, army units uh, of Asian Americans. Uh, and he won the medal of honor. So for valor. So, you know, he was doing this great service for his country fighting Nazis. And it, here we have this injustice taking place back at home where all of uh, the Asian Americans were being kind of put into these camps. And because there weren't doctors to help his wife, she was um she had complications with childbirth and they both passed away so he never had 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 his own son and i think he never intended this to happen but he slowly grew to really care for daniel and almost you know he's he becomes like a surrogate father for him and daniel of course lost his father they never say when but in the second film he does he talks about being with him on his deathbed and it's a very emotional scene where they're both um, Mr. Miyagi just loses his father, who must have been like 110 years old. I don't know how old he was, but, um, you know, his father had a nice long life, I'll just say. For sure. Uh, but yeah, I mean, to long story short, though, I just think that Mr. Miyagi is a is really the heart of this story. Yes, Daniel is the character we sort of follow, but it's also Mr. Miyagi's Mr. Miyagi's journey, too. He is definitely he definitely grows. He He's, as you said, he's like this kind of kooky Asian guy. That first shot where we see him, he turns around very slowly as Daniel enters, you know, his, his um, kind of, I don't know what you call it, his workshop. And he looks foreboding and scary. You know, you're like, who is this guy? Like, I wouldn't want to talk to that guy. Um, and, you know, he doesn't want anything to do with Daniel. You know, he's, an, he's annoyed with him at that point. So he grows as well. He becomes very protective of Daniel. And again, as you said, the, the, the following films really reinforce that uh, to the extent that they really are the only family each other has. And I think that's really, uh, it, it, that makes this movie uh, almost a family drama more than anything. It's not a conventional family drama, but it definitely does. Um, it, it gives you something more than I think most movies in this genre would try to do it. It takes it to another level that allows almost anybody. And this movie was a huge hit with audiences, not just teenagers, but adults, people of all ages loved this film when it came out. And I think that's a testament to the ability to develop both the younger and older character equally in a way that it both are believable. I mean, this was a huge um, important step in, Pat Morita's career as well, because he was largely known as a comedian, as a comedic actor. And somehow he 
pulled this character out of thin air. And it's like one of the, I would argue he's, Mr. Miyagi is one of the most identifiable and recognizable characters in cinematic history. You know, he just will go down in history as one of those, those characters that everyone can quote and everyone, you know, can picture in their head. Definitely. It's funny you say that because, you know, I echo, I don't want to repeat you because I think you have nailed it completely as far as the way I feel about the relationship as well, Adam. And I was so glad when we were prepping for this episode that you brought up some of that stuff about Miyagi's backstory, which I'll talk maybe a little bit about more later too, but I had not noticed that. And it was more powerful for me getting to watch the film with an expectation to look for that and to really... I didn't remember it was even in the movie, frankly, because all I remembered is the fight and wax on, wax off. And, and that's kind of where I find this interesting is, you know, you mentioned we think of Pat Morita and Mr. Miyagi, not Miyagi, as this wax on, wax off, right? And it's a humorous thing. And it got me to thinking because what I'm trying to do more and more, I'm trying to remember to do this, and that is to immediately after a movie is over that I watch with my kids is to say, what did you get from this? You know, just give me, give me, give me five minutes of conversation. It's hard. It's hard to get five minutes of conversation (laughs) from teenagers. But when I get it, it's interesting. And one of the questions that came from them stuck with me and it was, why doesn't Mr. Miyagi just tell him why he's doing what he's doing? And I was like, man, yeah, that's a great question because Danielson largely just obeys. Okay, he's he's doing the waxing, he's doing the the boards on the fence and then it builds and it builds. He's being that good kid that we see, that polite kid. He's never complaining until that one night when he blows up and he's like he cusses up a storm. It's the first time we've ever like, he goes bull, he totally loses his crap, man. I was like shocked paint your house wax your car paint your fence it was jarring to me when he when he flipped that was like so out of character and it made me wonder like is this method of teaching without giving the student any context really the best way to do it um or is it just a method that makes a story more cinematically interesting and i'm curious what you guys think because you know would it have been different had Mr. Miyagi told Daniel, listen, I'm going to teach you how to have your movements become routine, how to block. You're going to do this action over and over and over because it's teaching you, it's training your body muscle memory in order to quickly block an attack without having to think about it versus the way that we see, which it has this twofold consequence. It, it does build trust because Daniel has to blindly show faith in Mr. Miyagi's methods without knowing where they're going or what the point is. But it also, on the other side, it kind of shows a lack of trust in Mr. Miyagi for Daniel, that he can't trust Daniel to tell him why he's taking these lessons. And so it was a really interesting thing that it made me start lingering on the rest of the night when they brought that up. And I was curious what you guys thought. Well, at the very least, I think that Mr. Miyagi is preparing Daniel for a plan B in case karate doesn't work out. So he's going to be a great uh, car washer, sander, and, and all his that own stuff. auto, you know, place, right? Yeah. His own car. car so he's got, you know, so he's got, 
He's got some fallback positions. We still don't know where all those cars came from, by the way. Dude, well, I we know they came from Detroit, but we don't know. <laughs> Detroit. Yeah, let's put that in. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I, I honestly, when I when I look at that, I think that there is definitely some value for a cinematic effect because there are some great little comedic moments in that when the big reveal happens and you know Daniel's like wax on wax off and yeah he's like wax on wax off you know so you get value from that but from a storytelling standpoint I think there's value because at the very beginning Miyagi says trust me know that you have come to me to ask me to train you and I need you it may be blind faith but it's still faith and I think what he's trying to do is give Daniel this, I mean, practically, I think he's creating muscle memory, but I'm also thinking that what he's doing is he's trying to teach Daniel about more than just karate. And that comes out as the film progresses that Miyagi's role in his life, I think he's taken on as a guide, not a savior necessarily, even though he's you know saved his life a couple of times, particularly with, uh, with the Cobra Kai skeleton crew. But I think for him, Miyagi says, look, I've got an opportunity to maybe by unconventional means, I've got an opportunity to give this kid something that's going to last forever that goes beyond just an, a discipline, that it's about more than just karate. So maybe these unconventional means are almost a way to challenge Daniel to think, what is he doing? And maybe forcing him to trust him. Maybe for Mr. Miyagi, it's like, how far will he let me go to train him this way? Because we never see Miyagi poking fun at all this. We never, we actually see him as like, um, you know, breathe in, breathe out, long str- I mean, he never is like poking fun at his methods. He's taking them very seriously, even though to us they seem kind of ludicrous. But I think for him, for Miyagi, it's a chance to teach Daniel beyond that which he's actually asking for. Because I think he sees Daniel asking for more than just karate lessons. Yeah, I, I agree with both of you. And I also feel like it goes back to the hero's journey definition uh, in the definition, at least Campbell's de- de- definition. Uh, the hero is introduced to supernatural or mysterious wonders and during their journey. And to me, this was kind of what they were going for. They w- they wanted to introduce karate in sort of a mysterious way, a wondrous way that, again, is so cinematic that at a certain point, Daniel just has this, this revelation. Like, I get it now. I understand. And he also, at that point in time, he truly respects Mr. Miyagi. It's like he, he didn't know up until that point. I think he was appreciative of the fact that he was willing to train him. But I think Daniel just thought he was doing some chores to sort of pay for it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, like the, maybe I'm doing this because this, I, you know, I'm not going to get free karate lessons. I got to help him out with, he's an old man. He needs me, might need to help paint his fence, you know? Um, but I also always wondered, and they never answered this, but I always wondered maybe Mr. Miyagi's father, they talk about it in the second film that Mr. Miyagi's father taught him his karate and as well as his friend Sato uh, as young children, maybe his father introduced certain blocking techniques to him through painting and sanding at a young age, maybe at age six, who knows, you know? So maybe he felt this is how I learned 
So I'm going to pass on that same method of teaching to right. Daniel. I, again, there, I have no nothing to back that up. It just a lot of times teachers will teach the way they learn. Um, and uh, that's just, you know, a theory I always uh, was curious about. I don't think we'll ever know <laughs> the, the answer to that, to that theory. But mm-hmm. I, I, yeah, I just think that we're, we're sort of all right. I think there's no one clear reason for this choice. But I do think that it made all the difference in how the film worked for audiences. That, that, that moment where he's able to block Mr. Miyagi's, you know, blows, his kicks and punches is that sort of aha moment for not just Daniel, but for the audience. And it, it's such a powerful moment in the turning point in the film. And uh, the second turning point I would argue is the moment where he sort of, again, raises uh, his level of respect for Mr. Miyagi um, goes to a hundred percent is when he gets really drunk and tells him the story about his, his, his past and it's the first time, you know, where this Miyagi is sleeping. He bows to him in his sleep. And you can see in Daniel's eyes, he gets it now. He gets, you know, that th- that he went through something far more um, difficult than he's ever gone through, at least that Daniel's gone through, at least in his short 17 years. And he's then fully committed at that point. It's like, you know, he doesn't even need Mr. Miyagi. He's, he goes out on his own to train in a, in a great montage with with, with a, a incredible score at that at that point, and that to me is like the is the big turning point for for Daniel to you know to become ready to truly train you know and and be dedicated to that. Well, can I just say this before before we move on that I may be the only person who ever thought this, but the training montage after that scene, I actually thought Mr. Miyagi died. Because the next two or three scenes were Daniel by himself, like right. I'm going to keep going, even though my trainer dies. You know? Oh, oh no! It's <laughs> like completely that's, that. that's a morbid take. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's tragic. Okay, but, but I can well, see as a young child how that a kid might not get what happened. Right. You know, how would you yeah. know what it means to get so drunk that you pass out when you're <laughs> yeah. six years exactly old? Exactly you know? what it was. Um, like, did he die? What happened? Right. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Well, you know, when we're talking about him as a trainer. I, the other thing that I thought of this time around, which I never would have thought of when I was eight or so years old, was I was comparing in my head the whole movie, Mr. Miyagi and Yoda. Okay. And it's funny that you mentioned this hero's journey and, and Joseph Campbell, because like you said, Star Wars is like one of our greatest references for that. And these characters take really interesting paths that are almost very much the same, but while being, I think, very oddly different. And so you've got Mr. Miyagi training Daniel. You've got Yoda training Luke. Yoda's making Luke do things in, you know, Dagobah and raise, you know, fighters out of the swamp and things that he doesn't understand so that he harnesses this power of the force, just like Daniel is harnessing this power to auto block and where they kind of go in what I think is maybe different ways. So I wonder what you think is Mr. Miyagi says, win, lose, no matter. You make good fight, earn respect. Then nobody bother. It almost is contrary, in my opinion, to Yoda, who says, do or do not, there is no try. Mr. Miyagi, in a sense, is saying, just try. If you try, you've succeeded. Where Yoda is saying, no, it matters. 
if you do or don't. And I don't, I, I just found it very, very interesting. Later on, he actually says, Mr. Miyagi says, either you karate do yes or you karate do no. You, you, what does he say? You karate do guess so squish? Just like great. So that's where he seems to be saying what Yoda is saying, though, in like his own words. So it's it's really interesting because it's almost like it's contradictory at one point. Yeah, there's definitely the idea of there's a similarity in that I think both Yoda and Miyagi want Daniel and Luke, respectively, <laughs> to commit to what they're doing. I think that the do or do not. There is no try. I think both, I think Yoda to Luke is saying exactly what Miyagi to Daniel is saying. It's like, you don't take that middle road. That middle road is going to be filled with uncertainty. It's going to give you too much of a safety net to go back. And it's going to damage what you could become, essentially. And I think what Miyagi does, I love that he starts out with that first lesson. And then he kind of picks up on it where he goes, you ready to begin? And, and then he goes, yeah, I guess so. And we just kind of think of it as a throwaway line. Like, okay, he's ready to start. And he goes, Daniel-san. And then he goes into his, <laughs> you know, karate left side, karate right side. And then he just, it's the beginning of his, it's the beginning of his lessons that elevate that whole training sequence to another level. Because this time around, I started honing in on those different lessons that he was teaching and they i mean they're subtle I, I didn't pick up on them until i actually got a little help from the internet where they were called out that being the first one um there's one where he says first learn stand then learn fly when daniel wants to ask him about the crane kick and he says that's nature's rule daniel son not mine uh you know you got to be you know mastery is better than goal setting in that case and then he says <laughs> daniel asks him hey what kind of belt do you have and of course he comes back with that great line Canvas, JC Penny, three unit idea. You like? Because <laughs> Daniel thinks he's like a karate master, so he should be like a black belt. And the fact is, you're 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 more than just the sum of your parts. And so there's there's so many of these little lessons that start with that one, really. I mean, not chronologically, but I think the big lesson starts with that Yoda esque type thing. And I don't think it's any surprise that uh, it reminds us of that. I mean, what Empire came out in eighty one, and this one came out in what eighty eighty four eighty. I can't. Yeah, so eighty four. So it it would not surprise me if they used that as a as a as a kind of callback or inspiration. Yeah, I you know I never really I never I always thought of him as like a Yoda type character, but I never, Aaron, I never really thought about it as deeply as you just described. And it's I I, I like it. I, I I I'm it's making me think right now. Uh, you know, on the fly about it. And it one thing I just sort of thought about is that. Yoda was sort of training Luke for a, a, an inevitable battle with Darth Vader, which was life or death. So he had a different intention and goal in mind in terms of preparing Luke. Um, he had to become a true warrior in essence, He's somebody that could not only defend themselves, but if necessary, take life, you know? And Mr. Miyagi, I think at every point, in in all of the films really he's in this film but in this film in particular he's he's preparing daniel for one task he didn't really like you said how could you learn karate in two months i don't think he did i think mr miyagi knew how to train daniel to learn just enough to compete in a tournament setting he didn't know all the katas he didn't know all the moves but he knew how to block 
and how to get points so that he can win and earn the respect of the bullies and also or, you know, build self-confidence. Then, of course, in the subsequent films, they continue their training where he continues to learn more about uh, other techniques and katas and things that were necessary to actually, you know, would be necessary to be a, a true karate master or a black belt. He in no way was a black belt, but he was sort of tr- trained to for a specific task by Miyagi. So I think he knew he had a limited time about eight weeks or whatever it might, I think it was from Halloween to, to Christmas. Was it Christmas day? I think it was that the tournament was on something like the 20. Oh gosh. I don't even remember. Um, I just, I'm trying to remember, but I think it was somewhere at the end of December and um, December 19th, December 19th. So I, yeah, I knew it was right around Christmas. So um, if you hadn't said it, some one, one of the listeners would have been like, how did you not know that? You know, that's true. Um, (laughs) Very true. It's on the poster behind them. Isn't it? It's on the poster, Adam. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I just, I think that he had this limited amount of time and he had to pick and choose Miyagi, what he was going to teach him. And ultimately he knew that, that it didn't matter if he went, if he won or lose, um, that that wasn't what he was doing in this short span of time. It, what mattered was that he, A, got them to stop, beating up on him for two months, he even jokes about that. He, when they're getting into the truck after leaving uh, the, the Cobra Kai dojo, he says uh, something like, I know get beat up for two more months or something like that, you know? And I think that's, that was like step one, yeah. just to kind of get him out of the hole <laughs> and then prepare him for a, a one-on-one opportunity to fight clean and to fight in, in a way that, it isn't a battle to the death. It's not going to be a street fight. It's going to be a fair refereed fight where he can't really get hurt. Although he does mess up his knee, uh, unfortunately. Well, in, in a lot yeah. of ways, what it does is it creates in a great contrast between the Cobra Kai mentality, the way of the fist, I think is what they, they call and Daniel's karate because Miyagi says point blank karate for defense only. And that's what he trains him for. He trains him all that stuff. And I didn't realize this until my recent viewing, all that stuff was just blocking. And he kept saying, he keeps asking, when am I going to learn how to punch? And so he finally does. But usually the punch is just, just that. I mean, there's no other. Now I think granted the tournament, we show him, you know, doing some elbows and things like that here and there. But the whole point of the, the film is to bring out this defensive posture so Daniel can defend himself and, and looking necessarily- for a weakness in your opponent, you know, like, exactly. You know, yeah. seeing when they, when they put their guard down, then you can just slip in that quick jab and you don't have to know a lot about punching. You just have to know how to defend yourself and then know how to counterattack at the right time. Right. It's interesting. Yeah. You, you guys are bringing this up because it leads into something else I want to talk about, which also is a star Wars reference, I guess that ties, I, I bought the last Jedi at the store before watching the, the karate kid the other day. So I wonder if like I subconsciously was doing this, but probably, probably, you know, Cleese is kind of Darth Vader like, and he's used the force, harness the dark side, right. Of, mm. of the force. And it, it made me think about these differences in approach between he and Miyagi and culturally how they're how fighting sports and combat sports work today and in general whether it's boxing or mma now these are this is a different concept you just outlined it really well adam this is a refereed thing where it's it's all about supposedly getting points and such but the fact is 
you're punching and kicking each other's bodies. You're physically assaulting each other's form in order to accomplish a point of some manner. Is it a bit unfair to expect people to be like Daniel and Mr. Miyagi in this arena? Is that why we don't see this from people that are fighters? You know, generally what we see a lot of in the you know media and when we see these guys is like people who have attitudes and people who have problems with violence and controlling their emotions. Is that a product somewhat of being in a combat sport and is karate different enough that it makes the change where you can harness that? I think in a lot of ways, karate is a, is treated as a discipline and not, I mean, it's a sport, but first and foremost, it's a discipline in, as I was watching the, the, the trilogy this week, I started seeing a lot of references to when one person is talking to another person and one character is talking to another, they talk about your karate versus my karate. And there's a distinction between the Cobra Kai style and Miyagi style, Miyagi-Do karate, I guess is what it's, it's officially known as. And they're both disciplines for sure. They're just motivated by different things where the Cobra Kai is unapologetically strike first, strike hard, no mercy. It's an attack-based discipline, but it's still a discipline. I, I think some of my favorite scenes are when we see these little, the the training setup in Increases Dojo, where everybody's repeating after Johnny in the, in the key ups and stuff like that. That's very much a discipline thing. You know, everybody's in sync, everybody's staying focused and even uh crease pulls somebody <laughs> off whenever he gets distracted. And so there's a lot to be said about karate as a whole being a discipline and what karate kid does in its own way is it sort of shows what a pure discipline should look like in Miyagi do. I would say pure. I mean, maybe for the sake of the movie, it's pure, but, in the case of Cobra Kai, it's what a discipline looks like when it's tainted, when it's tarnished, when it's manipulated a little bit. Because obviously we're meant to believe that the Cobra Kai way of doing karate is wrong and the Miyagi-Do way of doing karate is right because we're siding with Daniel. Cobra Kai, the TV series, allows us to question that a little bit. And that's one of the things I like about it. But for the sake of the film that we're talking about, I think there's definitely a cinematic distinction between what's considered pure and what's considered tainted in this case. Well, he, does both say, he does say at one point, no such thing as bad student, bad teacher, make bad student. Yeah. Right. So it boils yeah. down to the person. Right. Yeah. And I do think there are plenty of, of martial arts schools where they do teach offensive um, route, you know, um, tactics for fighting as as a form of of uh of training and of, of defense you know they talk about it you know the best defense is a good offense they this is not a That's bad football. thing yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> they, do, they do teach that though in a lot of uh martial arts when i was studying taekwondo that which is again a, a korean version of this it was very much a defensive, like there was very little in the way of offensive technique at all. It was almost entirely defensive, which is really what Miyagi was teaching. He was trying to teach him that you always defend yourself first before you retaliate, before you, you strike back. And uh, yeah, I just think that most contact sports that people, and boxing is a, you know, a very violent sport, 
and it's all offensive. Yes, there's there's blocking, there's defensive training as well, but there's nothing wrong, I think, per se, with learning how to be to do offensive attacks for competition purposes. But it's I think how it's applied to everyday life that is what he's trying to teach Daniel is that you don't use this in school. You don't use this, you know, at the beach. You don't use this anywhere where people that you're up against have no training. You know, this is a like a gift that you have that you've been trained to learn and it is to never be used unless absolutely necessary. And that's I think the the real the real lesson that Miyagi is teaching. Agreed. There's a really funny line, by the way, in Cobra Kai in one of those episodes where it reminded me kind of of that difference in this opinion. And, uh, you know, in golf, we say drive for show, putt for dough, right? And at one point, Johnny is teaching his apprentice and the apprentice is asking him, well, when am I going to learn to kick, right? Because kicking is all offensive. There's really not really blocking involved in the kicking. It's about, you know, the knockout punch or the drive in golf. And he says, kicks get chicks, right? (laughs) (laughs) And I just died laughing because I was like, yeah, that's true. Like even in the Karate Kid, like, you know, they want to know when they're going to get to kick. When do I get to kick? When do I get to stop with this punching, boring punching? Like, I want to kick something. And, uh, And it's interesting to see that play out. Yeah, it's such an evolution of going from doing defense and then wanting to punch and then having punching and now wanting to kick, right? Yeah, so you see Miyagi doing this off in the distance and it becomes this sort of majestic move, this crane technique. So Daniel looks at him and, you know, that's what he aspires to, to, to be. He wants to, to learn how to do that, that, that move. And, and, I mean, I think we all saw it coming. He was going to use that at the, in the, at the end of the film. Um, but I still, I, I would still argue it's, it's a great cinematic moment, even though we knew it was coming that that moment with hearing Kreese say, finish him. And the music is building. You see Miyagi, you know, look at, look intensely at Daniel. It's just like a great cinematic moment. And, you, you know, it, it, it is arguable that it was an illegal kick because you weren't, you're not supposed to kick, do any kicks or punches to the head. But, um, you know, they even mentioned that I think in Cobra Kai, like it was an illegal kick, but um, I don't know if, if I don't really know how they, we're judging it, you know, as how the referee was judging that. <laughs> well, the only, the only uh, instructions we get are from Allie where she, right. she's been to these things, you know, several times. And uh, somebody argued, well, if that's an illegal kick, there are several people punching people in the face that yeah. was, that was, that was legal. <laughs> right. But the, the thing about the crane kick that makes it so, I mean, it's iconic for sure. And you're right. We knew it was probably going to be the, be used you know, as, as a climactic moment, but the thing that you, you have is a sense of this lesson on balance. And I love that Miyagi uses the physical to create a bigger lesson. Uh, one of my favorite scenes is when he and Daniel go out on the lake and he goes, (laughs) of course, these little subtle like just moments are just cracking me up where he goes, bow, get bow. And he, and Daniel bows it. No, no, no. Get on the bow of the boat, you know, stand up on the bow. And so the whole time he's talking about, you know, when am I going to learn how to punch? And he goes first, learn stand then learn fly or whatever it is. And the, the whole time he begins to set up this idea that, that balance is the key to good karate. And the, the crane technique is one of those, 
physical techniques that encompasses what it means to have balance. But again, I dig the fact that Miyagi is setting Daniel up with something that is immediate and sort of makes sense to kind of teach him something in a bigger light. And, and there's a moment that, um, that I'll, you know, I'll just spoil it. We'll, that we'll talk about in, in, in our connecting points that I think really sums this up, but, but balance is probably the biggest lesson that I think is, is taken away from me from, from this film. And I, I wanted to ask you guys um, just real quick, were there any specific lessons that, that you guys gravitated towards or that you saw this time around that you didn't really pick up on in your previous viewings? Uh, I, you know, it's, I think I'm for the most part, it's hard for me to watch movies like this and not watch it through the lens of my younger self <laughs> because I, I just had watched it so many times. This was a movie that uh, I either rented it from a video store or I think our library had a VHS copy and I would just go repeatedly and check it out. <laughs> this and like Ghostbusters, there was like a small selection of VHS tapes at our local library. And I would just, it was like all me <laughs> taking them out over and over Adam's again. collection at yeah. the library. <laughs> and um, I would just, you know, watch them over and over again. And I think because of that, I knew, I know most of these films um, inside out this, this first film in particular, not the sequels so much, but so, I, you know, aside from sort of connecting with Miyagi on a different level this time and sort of seeing things through his eyes, I really feel like, you know, I, it, it it holds up for me. It's the same movie for me. I don't think it's it's a uh, you know some movies don't. Some movies don't hold up if you revisit them after twenty thirty years. This to me it still works. It works for me the same way it did then. Now if I was seeing this for the first time today, I don't know. I mean I think it's still a solid movie. Um, you know it would certainly look dated for people you know younger audiences. But I often wonder you know like Aaron it, if your kids like really liked it, you know, like would, do they see it as an old movie in quotes, or does it feel fresh enough and relatable enough that it doesn't matter, you know? And I think that good movies, regardless of their age will hold up. And because they're, they're telling a human experience that we can all connect with and relate to. And I think that, I think this movie has that. I think that in spades, I think it's got, that's, that's what makes it, so strong is that is that it's the humanity in it it's the relationship in it and again if we look back at other films of the 80s that haven't sort of held up quite as well that's that's the difference you know and uh if you if you've never read roger ebert's review of this film his original review from 1984 uh it's really worth reading it's uh, it's you can read it at rogerebert.com. It's a four-star review. He considered it one of the best films of 1984, uh, and he explains why. And I just think that I, I always agreed with what he wrote. I don't always and haven't always agreed with Roger Ebert, in particular on Full Metal Jacket, but in this case I do. <laughs> and I think that he, you know, he, he saw it for what it was and for what it, for what it was trying to be. Um, and, and obviously he, he didn't care for the sequels nearly as much like most critics, but this, this original film just for me, it holds up. It's a beautifully shot movie. Also, it's something that I don't, I know that we don't tend to get too technical in this podcast, but I think that if you ever want to learn, if someone out there is listening, they want to learn more about cinematography or film language, you can really 
study this film shot by shot and see how every single shot, every single frame is composed in such a way that you can actually get the essence of the story out of that frame. You can take like, you could take a hundred still shots from this movie and actually tell the story and know what the characters are feeling, know what, where the, what, uh, what their motivations are. And that's what a good cinematographer and editor can add to a film. And I really think this film has that again, a lot of films in this genre wouldn't care as much about the cinematography. They would just think it's a teen, you know, a teen karate movie. It doesn't need to, to look that great. It doesn't need to be shot that well, it just needs to be, you know, good enough. And I think this is an example where they just went above and beyond. They, they thought they were making something on a whole nother level. Yeah. And it, I agree, man. It, it really does hold up. That was the, one of the things that I, I noticed the whole way through was, well, I take that back after those 15 minutes, I said, we're pretty cheesy and I rolled my eyes. Then it, then it held up fairly well. And the kids agreed. And they asked me, they said, are there more of these? And I said, yes, there are. There's, there's one that's pretty good and one that's really not. And then one that we pretend doesn't exist. And so we may eventually get to those. Um, I'm going to watch them again myself. I'm interested in doing what you guys did and kind of catching up with those after Cobra Kai. So maybe I'll save it for when I'm with them. To answer your initial question really quickly, Patrick, I did have a couple. uh, uh, And I wouldn't say, I'd say most of my lessons we've really talked about in depth. But two things I noticed. One, I noticed this this specific scene with his mom early on in the film that stuck out to me and kind of resonated throughout was his relationship with his mom. It's right after Daniel is attacked by Cobra Kai the first time and he's really upset and he's just, he wants to go back to Jersey. He keeps saying that and he's blaming her and he's saying, you know, she didn't ask for his input. Mm -hmm. And this is different because 13 year old me is going to resonate with Daniel, but 39 year old parent me said, you know what? This is a really good mom. She is concerned about him. We don't know all of her reasons. All we know is that his dad's gone and she's trying to make a new life. And it's kind of goofy for him because she's like, oh, the pool, the pool, the pool. But it made me think about the fact that she tries everything she can to make his experience better and to make life work for him and for her in the context that she has to with what she has means available to do. And that's a good mom. And the lesson to me would be that we can't let our children make choices for us, adult choices. Mm. Like, like he doesn't get to have a say in whether he goes to California. And I think when we watch it early on in our lives, we resonate with his, him being upset. And we think, come on, man, like Daniel didn't, he's stuck here. It's not, you know, he doesn't want to be here. Why does he have to be here? But in reality, that's not his call. He is a teenage boy <laughs> who has to follow along with what his mom wants for their life and understand that she is trying to do the best. Okay. Anyway, sorry, I'm not going to do the song like you did, (laughs) but I think that that was a pretty powerful little subtle thing for me. The other lesson I have is movies have gotten better about endings because what blew my mind was how anticlimactic this ending was. I texted you like seconds afterwards, Patrick. And I said, what just happened? The crane kick happens. And literally within 20 seconds maybe we're in the credits and i was like what just what what i i did not remember that right like you don't get the build up even the crane kick scene it doesn't that's what was so striking about cobra kai pun intended is that it doesn't 
slow-mo. It doesn't pause. There's no swelling of a musical theme in the background. They just go up to do the next point. Daniel goes it up. It's like, boom, bam, kick down, credits roll. And I was like, wow, jarring. So that was a bit different for me. And I didn't love that, I'll admit. Yeah, I don't know that Karate Kid stuck the landing. But I will say this. There was a decision to initially have Daniel being hoisted up and carried off the mat. And that decision was scrapped in favor of the pan over to Miyagi and having him smile. And I think that's the better decision. And I think having the movie end with that says so much about what this relationship is and about what this movie is about. And to go back real quick, Adam, to your comment about Roger Ebert, he says, and I agree, his review is fantastic, but he says, kind of summing up the Karate Kid, he finishes off by saying, the heart of this movie isn't in the fight sequence, it's in the relationships. And that's why I think that last shot works so well. Granted, it's very quick and it's done and whatever, but it still is the right decision. Whether or not it should have lingered or whatever, I think the focus on Miyagi is what the film should have ended and and, and did perfectly. And I think the one thing that I liked about that ending, yeah, it does end abruptly, and I agree with that, which they kind of remedied with the opening of the next film, which kind of picks up right where it left off, where he's taking a shower, and then they have the confrontation in the parking lot. So it was kind of nice that maybe they recognized <laughs> that they needed a little additional uh, story in there. But I did love, and I never, I never really thought about this before. Maybe this is what I did take away this time that Daniel yells to Mr. Miyagi and says, we did it. And I think we is the, is, is so important. This wasn't just Daniel's victory. It was Miyagi's too. And that's, I think that's what the movie is all about. They say sometimes that the penultimate shot of a movie holds the meaning of the film, like in that shot or whatever said, I think that was the penultimate shot. It was the second to last shot. He says, we did it. We did it. Mr. Miyagi. It cuts to Mr. Miyagi. He smiles and it's like a freeze frame, I think. And that's it. You know, they both won, you know, and Mm -hmm. Mr. Miyagi who had a hard life, this was maybe a high point for him that he was able to train this, this young boy to defend himself, build confidence and have an incredible victory against all odds, you know, especially considering he basically got his knee blown out in the middle of this fight. So it's, I I think it it builds to that too, because he says at the beginning of the fight, and this was probably the most like emotional moment for me in the movie, which is, I don't know why, but it was like the simplisticness of Daniel going to the announcer and saying, no, before we get this fight on, it's Miyagi, not Miyagi. Because it's something we've seen as a joke. It's something we've seen played throughout the film. Something that is a subtle degrading of him and of his culture and of who he is. And Daniel immediately recognizes it. In the midst of this big fight that's all about him, he stops everything to tell the announcer, no, you need to get his name right. And that is like such a powerful thing, a moment of respect that it leads to, I think, it pairs perfectly with that ending. I absolutely agree with I agree. everything. Yeah. yeah, that's good stuff. Well, if you guys don't have anything additional, let's move into our connecting points. And uh, Adam, this is the moment that really kind of sums up where our feeling of the feeling film kind of resonates. It's that one moment or one scene that hits us the most. And 
as our guest, I thought we'd start with you. Did you have a connecting point? Because we've seen on the show that sometimes we don't. I don't know that you couldn't have a connecting point in a movie like this, but we'll go ahead and start with you. Well, I I hope I'm understanding correctly what you're asking for. Uh, I I find for me like the most emotionally, um, just the engaging moment for me and and point in the film is when, as I mentioned earlier, Daniel, Mr. Miyagi gets drunk, tells Daniel his story uh, in a kind of broken way. But you kind of, I actually put on the subtitles on my TV to kind of make sure I was really hearing every, or, or in this case, reading every word that, Mr. Miyagi was telling Daniel about his time in World War II and his 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 wife and everything. Um, that moment where he you know he puts him to bed, bows to him, and then you see him training to the Bill Conti score. For me, it just it gives me chills. You know, it's a moment that really um, it resonates with me. It just it, we all sort of want that moment in our life where we have this this realization that we that we're going to do something, that we can do something and that we're determined and dedicated, um, you know, cause I think it goes back to the whole do or do or do not, you know, he, at that point decides I'm going to do this, you know, no more complaining, no more whining, <laughs> no more anything. He's just determined with or without Mr. Miyagi, he's going to see this through. And, and, and it, it, that's what, that's what stands out for me. Yeah. Aaron, what about you? It's when Mr. Miyagi says, you beginner luck when Daniel catches the fly. No, Uh, I did promise my daughter a car if she could catch a fly with chopsticks because she's learning to drive. And we had just gone out and driven in a parking lot for the first time right before watching this movie. And uh, she's not down. She doesn't think she can accomplish it. I had people telling me, hey, there's going to be a loophole because, you know, what if she uh, catches like a fly in a zipper? And I was like, well, then I'll buy her a Hot Wheels. Okay, but. My connecting point is the same as Adam's. It's that backstory because, again, I say thank you, Adam, for really telling me about it because for some reason I did not remember it being in the film at all. And so when it did come around, I think I was more tuned into it than maybe I would have been otherwise. I might have – I mean, I think I would have felt it still being 39 this time and even not worrying so much about the fighting aspect and looking for the emotional connection, but – it was, gosh, it was just so moving the way that everything plays out. And we've, we've talked about it in detail. The, I, I think, I guess if I had to sum up this whole moment for me is that we go through this process of Daniel learning these things, discovering them and learning about Miyagi. And the way that it ends is Daniel goes out and we see him practice the crane kick. And so it pairs so well with, just that brief moment earlier where he sees Miyagi doing it. And I feel like this act of Daniel trying to learn the crane kick again, he's not doing it for himself at this point. Like I said earlier in, in my one word takeaway section, like he's doing this crane kick. He's learning this kick for Mr. Miyagi. He's learning it to show respect that he can be trained by this man so that this man can feel successful that he's a good trainer like that's the way i see it and so i just thought that was amazing and mind-blowing to me that uh, we have a film that shows a character like that that puts somebody else above and beyond his own skin his own life um and what's right in front of him he's thinking about this bigger picture and so i just yeah i i echo pretty much everything you've said about adam and i just add that little piece i guess 
that yeah. level of vulnerability in that scene, I think was very unexpected. And that may be why you didn't remember it, Aaron, because it definitely, I mean, as a whole, I think it fits perfectly in the movie, but initially the, the director, John G. Alvidson, I think is how you pronounce his last name. He fought for that scene to be put in the movie, to be kept in the movie, because I think it was supposed to be cut because it affected the overall tone. And I believe that scene was predictably what got Pat Morita a nomination uh, for an Oscar was that particular one. I mean, it is so incredibly emotionally impactful that, I mean, it, it, it doesn't come out of left field. I think it comes right at the opportune moment because it's what I think bonds both Daniel and Miyagi together in terms of what their friendship is. Yeah. I, I was just going to add to that, that I think up until that point, you think Miyagi is this kind of perfect individual. Like he's so disciplined. He would never do anything wrong. He would never say the wrong thing. He would never drink alcohol. And then here he is just completely drunk. And it's so unexpected. As you said, he's not, it's out of character for him, but then we learn why, you know, it's the, he's remembering it's, it's a, it's an anniversary of, of something horrible that happened. And he's mm -hmm. trying to cope with that. You know, he's trying to deal with that, that, um, that those memories. And I think Daniel's sort of, he sees him as a human being for the first time in a way, you know, as somebody yeah. that's, that's, that's frail. That is, that is, um, that has faults. And up until that point, I think he just saw him as this kind of mentor that he wanted to make proud. You know, he wanted to, like you said, Aaron, he wanted Mr. Miyagi to be proud of him. He wanted to make sure that Mr. Miyagi, that he, wa that he wasn't letting him down. I think that that's the old, that's the best type of motivation. I feel like in a way is, is that self motivation where you want to do something, not because your parents are yelling at you to do it better or get better grades, but because you want to make that, that parent proud. You want to make them say, great job, you know, get that attaboy or great job. You know, it's, it's you finding that will and drive inside to do something for yourself and also to make somebody in your life that, that has helped you proud of you. Yeah. I think it's one of those scenes coupled with that montage, that training montage that you mentioned, Adam, that show us that for the first time, Daniel is needed by Miyagi because the, most of this, most of the movie has told us that Miyagi is needed, by, you know, Daniel needs Miyagi at this point. Now, I think we've seen that now Miyagi needs Daniel for what, for, for these various reasons. And of course it plays out that way. Uh, I love that scene. The one that connected with me though, the most was probably the new car conversation as well. <laughs> it's actually his birthday present. And the reason why is because it highlights those two themes of the movie that I really gravitated towards this time around, which is that unexpected friendship and finding balance. Uh, first of all, I love the fact that Miyagi knew which car Daniel was going to choose, because if you look, he looks at the keys and what's on the key key keychain, Miyagi's dog tags. That's right. I, just, I caught that for the very first time in this. I was view. like, he yeah. and, and it just says a lot. It says Miyagi knows Daniel yeah. enough to say, Hey, it's, yeah. you know, that was the one you're going to pick they're having this conversation and, and Daniel looks just so apprehensive. He's like holding onto the steering wheel, kind of gripping it very uneasily. And, and Miyagi says, what's wrong? And he's, and he says, I don't know. I'm just kind of nervous about the tournament and everything. And the fact that he says tournament kind of cracked me up. But anyway, he, Miyagi says, you remember lesson about balance lesson, not just karate only lesson for whole life, whole life, have a balance, everything be better. And I, of course I just butchered that <laughs> accent, but I didn't want to misquote. Uh, Miyagi there. 
And I think that you couple that with this unexpected friendship because Daniel comes back after he hears that and he's kind of receiving it and he looks at him, he goes, you're the best friend I ever had. Now, as a kid, I'm watching this, I'm going, man, Daniel, you're a loser. I mean, you really are just this guy who you really don't have any friends watching this as an adult and seeing everything that comes from that and everything that has built up to that moment, man, that's probably one of the most sincere moments in the entire movie because Daniel's being really vulnerable at this point. There's a, there's a real sense of vulnerability and Miyagi's reaction is so Mr. Miyagi. He goes, (laughs) you're pretty okay yourself. And he smiles and we know, but we know what he's thinking. We know he's like, I feel the same way. And it, it's, and then he and then he says something funny. He goes, "No, go find balance." <laughs> yeah, you know? and, he, and he and he shows <laughs> him the picture to. of Ali. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so Ali I, is balance. Yeah, yeah, Ali is balance, right? <laughs> and I, I just I love that scene so much because it really does sum up what I think makes this movie so great, and it's about that relationship with Daniel and Miyagi. Uh, we're downplaying the whole karate aspect of it that I think we all gravitated towards as kids. And we're embracing this genuine relationship that I don't know if that exists on the big screen these days. I mean, it probably does in more of a complex form, but it's so surprising to see a movie from almost 30 years ago have the depth that a movie like this does kind of hidden in plain sight within a movie that's, (laughs) I mean, really, we knew about as crane kicks and really great 80s lines. Uh, So yeah, I love that conversation. I think it's a, I think it's a fantastic scene. Adam, it has been amazing having you on the show. We're going to go ahead and wrap this up because I think we've, we've talked Karate Kid to death. Um, but if you want to keep the conversation going, where can people find you on social media? And is there anything else that you want to share? Kind of what's going on in your world that, that you want to let it, the, uh, the American people, the global people, the podcast people know about? Yeah. The- are the millions of listeners right yes, now? Yes, the millions um, of listeners yeah. tuning in right now. Someday, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm really only on one platform. I'm on Twitter. Uh, my handle is at Adam Rakoff, which is just A D A M R A C K O F F. And I would be more than happy to continue discussing this film with anybody that would like to uh, tweet me. And uh, yeah, I have a couple things that are happening right now or just happened. I have a short animated film that I produced uh, with James Hancock for Bill Plimpton. He's an Oscar-dominated animator, and we made a a new short dog film. Now, Bill Plimpton has this character, the dog, which is kind of like his Mickey Mouse character. He's made a whole series of these shorts with this dog character, and the first one was called Guard Dog, and it was actually nominated for the short, best short animated film in 2004 by the Academy. And this is the sixth in that series, and we just premiered it on iTunes uh, last week. So if you're interested in checking out a funny, hand-drawn, animated short film by Bill Plimpton, um, that's available. I think it's $2.99 on iTunes. It'll eventually become available on Amazon and Vimeo. Right now, it's it's exclusive to, to iTunes, though. Uh, and then I also worked on a film, a documentary, that's coming out in select cities this Friday, May 11th. It's called Film Worker, and it's been making the festival rounds. It premiered last year at the Cannes Film Festival uh, to rave reviews. And it's about a man named Liam Vitale, who was Stanley Kubrick's uh, personal assistant and sort of right-hand man and confidant. Uh, They worked together for something like 40 years, and he just knew – 
anyone knew Stanley, it was this guy. So this film sort of shines a spotlight on Leon and sort of tells his story about how he did pretty much anything you can imagine to work with and help Kubrick make his movies. And uh, it was directed by uh, Tony Ziera, um, and he just made a a – he edited the film as well. It's a fantastic documentary. Um, I actually helped with some of the images that are in the film. I I was able to scan and restore a number of old negatives from photographs that were taken on the set of Full Metal Jacket um, that were not used in the Full Metal Jacket diary. Some of them were, but many of them were not. And I also was able to get some some uh, photographs from some of the other extras and and crew members that were on that worked on Full Metal Jacket in London, or out just outside of London, and uh, we were able to scan a lot of these additional negatives, restore them, and they they're pictures that show Stanley working with Leon and so on. So they're just sort of little moments in any documentary. You need visuals to sort of accompany what you're trying to tell the story you're trying to tell. And there just wasn't a lot of images of this guy. Most people were taking pictures of Stanley, not of Leon Vitale. So thankfully we were able to, I was able to help um, contribute some of those. And uh, there's also, if you've listened to the full metal jacket diary, you'll hear some of the audio of Matthew talking about working with Leon on full metal jacket. That's also in, in the film. And uh, yeah, if you're a fan of Kubrick, you'll love it. And even if, you're not, if you just have ever worked on a movie, this is kind of a love letter to anybody that has ever worked on the set. Anyone who's like not the director, not the star, not the cast or the director. If you're just somebody that works in film behind the scenes, this really just kind of shows people what dedication really is that these guys are not recognized. They don't win awards, but these directors could not make their movies without people like Leon Vitale. And so it's a really beautiful film. He's um, getting up there in age. So it's really great that uh, at this point in his life, that this film is coming out and giving him a chance to sort of get a little attention for his, his contributions to the film industry. Fantastic, Adam. I um, just echo all that and say, listeners dive into all that. (laughs) I mean, check it all out because I definitely agree that getting a chance to see a a work behind the scenes makes the the impact of maybe a particular film or a series of films that much more just appreciative because you see kind of what goes into it. I know Aaron's been, when he went through the, the Hunger Games trilogy, he was able to check out some of the behind the scenes stuff and it gave him a better appreciation for it. So we're excited to see all that come to fruition, Adam. And uh yeah, just eat it up, consume it, and and enjoy that. If you want to find me or want to continue the discussion about tonight's movie or anything else, you can find me at Shoeless Patch. I'm on Twitter and Facebook, S-H-O-E-L-E-S-S-P-A-T-C-H. Be sure and at me so that way I can uh, engage in some good conversation with you. Uh, this next week, we are going to be covering a documentary called Score, a film music documentary And uh, along with that, we're going to have some really great bonus content for our patrons, uh, including a top five film score listing from myself, Aaron, and a special guest. So be sure to tune in next week for that, as well as if you want to get access to that bonus content, uh, hit us up on patreon.com slash feelin film and find out how you can do that.
Aaron, what about you? Where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Feelin Film Aaron or using the Feelin Film Twitter account. Also extremely active in our amazing Facebook group that we plug all the time. So if you're not a member yet, come join the crowd. It's about 400 strong almost at this point, and it's got a ton of conversation happening every single day. I think our Avengers Infinity War spoiler thread is north of 350 comments and going still. Uh, it is deep. There is some incredible, incredible discussion happening in there and stuff that has blown my mind, stuff that has pissed me off. So uh, yeah, come come check that thread out. Uh, it's a good one to get started with our group and see what these people like to think about. But it, it, it is an awesome place for cinephiles, for blockbuster lovers, for people who only remember the movies from the 80s because we like to cover all different kinds. Another thing we got coming up, Patrick, is it is SIF time. That is Seattle International Film Festival here in Seattle. And I am, once again, covering that festival. This year, I have a little bit more access. So I am currently watching movies already before the festival begins. It officially kicks off in the middle of May. But I have a page on our website that is SIF capsule reviews. So I am putting up little capsule reviews of each of the films I see as I go. You can find a pinned tweet on my Twitter account at the top of the page if you want to get a link to that, or you can just go visit feelingfilm.com and you can find find it there as well. Uh, love for you to check those out and get these films on your radar. They may not be coming to you right away, depending on where you are in the country. Uh, if you're in Seattle, that's why I'm telling you about these is because you need to know what you want to go see. Uh, SIF is kind of different than most film festivals that are like a week long or a weekend. SIF lasts almost 45 days. Okay. It is, it's like a 28 day festival, I think 45 for the press. It is a long haul and there are so many movies. There's over 440 movies that you can go see. I'm trying to help you figure out which ones of those matter. So come check out the coverage. There will also be more podcast coverage as well for those of you who do not visit the website and just want to have it in your ear holes. And lastly, if you enjoy what you hear, we would love to have you give us a rating on iTunes, give us a rating on Google Play Store, wherever you listen to us, Spotify, iHeartRadio, whatever the case may be. Just let other people know that you enjoy the show and help them discover us and hopefully become part of the Feel and Film community. Patrick, this has been awesome, man. Adam, it's been great. It's been fun. And we have had a blast. So until next time, everybody out there, stay positive. And keep feeling film.